It is a privilege, and thanks so much for the warm welcome this morning. It's uh, exciting. The uh, the passage that we're looking at is a bit of a challenging one. Uh, it's entitled, and, and as I did some research on it, it was called The Fool's Speech, and I was going to try and insert some lame dad joke about how that might be appropriate for me to talk about a fool's speech, but just uh, forget that I, you know, just ins- assume that I've given the lame dad's joke because I couldn't make it work. Um, but uh, as I was reading this passage, it reminded me of a book that I read when I was a student at university. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky was a famous Russian author. I'm sure none of you have probably read this. It's actually his shortest book called The Idiot. Uh, and the story is uh, it's set uh, at the end of the Russian czars just before the, Ru- the Bolshevik Revolution. It's set in this corrupt culture, in this cor- corrupt society. And the m- primary character is a guy by the name of Prince Mishkin. And Prince Mishkin is kind of like got this innocence about him. As he's, as he's moving through Russian society, he doesn't engage in all the, uh, the, the social games of trying to, you know, secure his advancement or secure, uh, his way forward. And, and so the people around him view him as kind of an idiot. They keep thinking that, you know, why isn't he not functioning the way that the rest of us are functioning? He's the, he, uh, for Fyodor Dostoevsky, who was a believer, he was the Christ figure. Uh, and and so I've um, reflected on that that uh, on Prince Mishkin quite regularly. Whenever I come across dealing with culture issues and how do I go about engaging with the people around me in in my world? Um, because one of the things I I must confess is that I hate feeling like a fool. I hate hate it when people treat me like I'm an idiot. Um, and one of the things that is uh, that is causing me to really wrestle at the moment is that I think we are going through some rapid cultural change. And so I've uh, spent 25 years on campus. I've navigated some really uh, or developed some really good ways to engage with people about the gospel. Uh, in fact, I met up with uh, the guy who's my personal trainer at the gym this week because uh, I'd heard he had a, a really interesting spiritual journey. And, uh, and at the end of it, he sent me a text and he said, Jeff, you're obviously really good at engaging with people from different worldviews. And I was like, I don't, didn't think the spiritual conversation got very far, but I felt like at least, you know, we'd related uh, in, a, in a positive way. Um, but I feel at the moment that our culture is changing so rapidly that I'm feeling a bit off balance. And if I'm feeling like that, then I'm sure that that's a feeling that a lot of us are, are sharing. Uh, and... Uh, about a month ago, I was at a leadership conference for our ministry and talking to our leaders, uh, and I spent three and a half hours talking about the culture change that we've gone through. Uh, I'm not going to spend three and a half hours now, but I might just give you a two-minute summary of what I said. Uh, so, if you, uh, And it's a uh, th- good way to think about it is this way. So up until about 1500 AD, we lived in a time of pre-modernism. So you're who you, uh, where, who you were was determined by your place in society. You know, you were either nobility, you were a clergy, or you were a peasant. Uh, and so the most important thing in that world was being loyal, being loyal to the king, being loyal to the pope. Um, and, the, and the Catholic Church was, is a great example of that kind of pre-modern, uh, pre-modern world. And, and we've had migrants move to Australia who come from non-Western backgrounds usually, and some of them also have a pre-modern mindset. So we, you know, you encounter somebody and it's like, uh, for us, you know, if we, uh, about 1500, we moved into the modernism mindset um, or worldview. 
where what you thought was actually the most important thing, what we believed was the most important thing, um, being right. And so we'd engage in discussion and debate, and the classic apologetics uh, was what dominated. Um, and so, uh, you know, you go back to career advice back then, it was like career advice in the pre-modern world was if you were a peasant, then you were going to, if your dad was a peasant, you were going to be a peasant, right? There wasn't much career advice to be given. If you, in the modern world, uh, particularly as we, with the scientific revolution and so on, it's like, what are you, you know, how are you wired? What are you good at? Let's, you know, let's invest in that, right? Uh, about 1970, uh, and maybe in the in the 80s, uh, we moved into this postmodern uh, time where where uh, it wasn't you know we can never know enough, we can never really understand everything in the world, and so all I know is what I've experienced, um, and so how I experience the world that like that's reality, and how you experience the world is your reality, and we need to tolerate each other, right? And that um, and so you know if the Pre-modern is the Catholic Church. The modernism was kind of the rise of the evangelical church, uh, the reformed churches as well. Uh, post-modernism seems to be the rise of the churches that, that championed experience, you know, so more of the charismatic and Pentecostal um, type churches. Uh, but in the last couple of years, I would say, some people say 2016, some say 2019, we seem to have moved into a new form of secularism that nobody's given the label to yet, so I can't tell you what it is. The, um, I've heard a few different labels, I'm not going to use those. Uh, but, um, but it's no longer just okay for us to say, this is what I think and this is what I feel. Uh, we need, and you just got to have to accept me, but we actually realise we need affirmation from other people to continue to hold our views. And so we've formed culture tribes. And in our world now, it seems, particularly in our Western world, we seem to be living in this culture war between this tribe and that tribe. And uh, as Christians, we can feel like we've lost cultural power because our tribe isn't as big as it used to be. Uh, and so so that we've got this affirmation thing that we're really struggling with. Um, how do we, you know, what is the new form of the church going to look like in this new culture? And so when we're thinking about this and being off, uh, off kilter a little bit. Um, as we come to our passage this morning, I think it's important to realise that this is a, a, an experience that the church has always faced. You know, back in Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is promoting the gospel, uh, the, the message of Jesus, and uh, and you know, Jesus' ministry formed in the in the rural villages of Galilee in a Jewish culture, right? But by the time Paul arrives in in Corinth. He's now trying to teach people to follow Jesus who live in a Gentile urban setting, right? What Jesus did in the villages is going to be different when it lives out in this uh, urban centre in Corinth. And, uh, and so for, for Paul, it was important that he understand the culture that he's engaging with. Some of his opponents, some of Paul's opponents, you know, in, say, the book of Galatians, were really loyal to the kind of Jewish way of doing things, right? And they were so loyal to it that their, that their approach threatened the essence of the gospel. What he faces in Corinth, though, is that some people have, um, are so uh, enamoured with the Greco-Roman culture that their approach or understanding threatens the gospel. And Paul is always trying to work out how do we navigate our way through these cultures so that we stay faithful to the gospel and following Jesus, but we're actually still engaged and understanding our culture. And so we see uh, an example of this in the first few verses in 2 Corinthians 11, 16 to 21. 
None of you can read that, I'm probably. But anyway, let me just read it again. It says, and it was well read before, thank you. Uh, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. Raf last week was talking, and I listened online bef- to see what was said last week before I turned up. Uh, he was talking about the whole background here, about Paul's opponents were these super apostles, these orators who were using Greek oratory to uh, to lead the church astray. And so here he says, tolerate me as you would a, a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, I'm talking as a fool. So the way that the super apostles were operating, Paul's saying uh, that was foolishness. But I'm going to take you on head on here. Uh, and since many are boasting in that way, i.e. the super apostles in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. So what Paul is doing is he says, I'm going to take the tools of my culture, of this culture that you're admiring, and I'm going to adapt them to my purpose. But just so you know... This is a worldly way of operating. It's not Jesus' way of operating. And, uh, and so we are, so, so what Paul's doing, so this, I mean, that's the big point in this, in this opening paragraph. And so when we're thinking about how do we engage culture, uh, we need to think about adapting the way that we operate so that it actually fits with our culture while still remaining true to the gospel. And one example I have for that is uh, what we're going to be talking about this afternoon. So, uh, in Power to Change, uh, if you know Campus Crusade for Christ and Bill Bright, uh, some of you have been old enough to remember uh, that Bill Bright wrote a booklet back in the 1950s, 60s called The Four Spiritual Laws. And uh, it started with the phrase, just as there are physical laws in the universe, so are there spiritual laws. And, uh, and it was written at a time when in America JFK had just announced that, uh, that we were going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And so everyone was totally absorbed with scientific laws, the laws of physics, and how is this all going to work, right? And so Bill Bright's four spiritual laws resonated with that culture. Uh, And more than a billion of those um, gospel tracts were printed and used globally and saw tens of millions of people come to Christ. But as we hit the 1980s, and I arrived on campus at the University of Sydney in 1988, that message wasn't resonating anymore, um, that people weren't so excited in the postmodern world about what are the physical laws in the universe, what are the scientific laws. They were interested, as I said before, about how we feel and about relationships. And so we changed the language of the four spiritual laws to the Knowing God Personally booklet. And the opening line is God loves us and created us for a relationship with him, right? And that that's true as well. That's another way of saying the gospel, right? But it resonated with the culture that we have. Uh, as we've moved into a more uh, visual society, uh, one of our ministries in, or our ministry in Switzerland came up with a, uh, a use of symbols, the four symbols. And, uh, and so the four symbols represent the four points, the same four points, but expressed in a slightly different way. And, and we have an app called the 4.au where we have three presenters on it. Nick, the guy in the middle of the three up there, uh, I led to Christ at Sydney Uni almost three years ago. Uh, he and then so he does the kind of classic knowing God personally presentation. Yelena on the left is uh, 
uh, Asian girl who works on our campus at Monash Uni, so she's a, one of our team members, and she presents the gospel using honor-shame metaphors. And then the guy on the right, uh, his name is Pastor Scar. If, you're looking, if you've got teenagers who like looking up uh, people on Twitch and so on, he's got 24,000 Twitch followers. He's a Baptist pastor in Western Sydney, and he presents the gospel using language that gamers uh, like. And there's about you know, several, I, could, I think he said there's over a billion gamers globally and there's no gospel presentation aimed at them. And so, so the, the same four symbols can be used to express the gospel in ways that are relevant for our community. But being visual, we're in a visual generation and so we're using symbols rather than words. Um, but as uh, followers of Jesus, I think it's also important to be aware that it's not just our... Uh, about how we present the gospel. It's also how we think about what it means to follow Jesus. Um, it's in our whole lives. And so for me, when I think about, uh, about the messages that come to me from our culture, uh, particularly the issue of finance, I studied economics and accounting. I worked for three years as a chartered accountant in the uh, professional world. And, uh, and I don't remember hearing at church talks about money as much as I got all these messages from, you know, you, you listen to the radio uh, and the news update every day is like what's happening with the exchange rate, what's happening with inflation, what's happening with uh, interest rates, uh, what's happening with economic growth, GDP. You get all these messages, you know, feeding your mind to think about money in a particular way. And then the pastor gets up and wants to talk about money and stewardship and giving in church. It's like, oh, I can't believe the pastor's giving a second Sunday this year to talking about money. And it's like, seriously, like if you read through the Gospels, uh, I, when I was at seminary, I had a professor, Craig Blomberg, whose book there is on the, on the screen, Neither Poverty Nor Riches. And, uh, and his book there traces the, what the Bible says about money through every book of the Bible. And I'd just been oblivious to it. Until I read that book, until I took that class, I was oblivious to how much God had to say about money and how much that challenges uh, what the message that I'm getting from the world around me. So we have to understand and engage our culture, but we also have to un- uh, recognise that the message of the gospel both affirms and challenges our culture. So as we're engaging with our culture, there's some things that we can affirm. We can't just reject things out of hand, but there's some things that it does challenge. And so we see this particularly in verses uh, 21b to 29. Again, so it says, Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, and I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? Paul says, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. And in this passage, as he goes through, uh, what he does is he talks about his background. He talks about uh, his hardships and sufferings. He talks about the dangers that he's engaged with in travel. He talks about the toil or the work that he's done on behalf of the churches. And he talks about his anxiety for the churches. What we find is that Paul uh, actually uses some, the structure that's provided by one of the Greek orators. Plutarch uh, actually has some rules for boasting. He says that if you're going to boast, he says, boasting is usually not a good thing. Um, in Greek culture, even in that culture, it wasn't a good thing. Uh, but he says, sometimes you're forced into doing it. And if you're going to do it, this is what you need to do. Attribute your achievements to fate or the gods. 
He says, uh, if you're going to uh, boast, then attribute your success to others. Uh, and give an example to others. You can boast if you're going to give us an example to others or defend your reputation. And we can think that Paul was actually defending his reputation here. He's trying to uh, model for them what it is that he should be doing or that they should be doing for themselves. Uh, and only in some cases can admitting one's own weaknesses be recommended. And so what Paul does, uh, he seems to start off fine with his background. In his, in his background is uh, being Hebrew, Israelite, and the descendant of Abraham. And it's like, what, is, what do those mean? What do those terms mean? Uh, reading lots of commentaries this week to try and get their, my head around how they, uh, how they uh, scholars have thought about it. And I think the best example is that these Greco-Roman super-apostles, background super-apostles, had charged Paul with being ignorant in this area, but even not, but not even knowing or understanding his own message. Uh, but Paul is saying, actually, my family uh, are from Palestine. I speak Aramaic and Hebrew and not just Greek, because a lot of the people in the church only spoke Greek. Um, so I, am, I actually have insight into scripture. He says, I am part of the, re- you know, my religious background is Israelite. Is I was part of God's people. And not only that, but I'm a descendant of Abraham. And if you think about Abraham, he was the one who God had promised that uh, I will make you a great nation. And through the nation, through your line, the nations of the world will be blessed. And what I'm doing, Paul... That Paul says, what I'm doing is that I'm, join, I'm actually joining with God in his act of blessing the nations. This is the moment where the nations are being blessed. So Paul uh, affirms the importance of Hebrew, Israelite, um, and uh, descendant of Abraham. But what he does next is he talks about all these problems. Now, I think if I was Paul and I was putting together my LinkedIn page, you know, with my job categories, uh, I don't know if anyone here has a LinkedIn page, but part of my role is, you know, to uh, to find out what our alumni are up to, and many of them are on LinkedIn. And, uh, and you know, they talk about what qualifications they have, where they studied, uh, what job history they've got, what achievements they are. There's a nice little blurb. This one, uh, I actually, I did a search on LinkedIn to see if there was already an Apostle Paul, uh, and there is in Zimbabwe, but I changed his photo and image so that uh, you can... <laughs> Um, that's not the real Apostle Paul. Uh, but if the real Apostle Paul was there, you know, he, he could have listed, you know, I've, uh, I've helped plant the church in Antioch. You know, I traveled from there and, uh, I was on Cyprus and, and Sergius Paulus, the proconsul in, in Cyprus, uh, had, you know, uh, became my sponsor, became my patron. And then we traveled from there and we, when we saw God work in Asia Minor, we saw God plant a church in Philippi. We saw God plant a church in Thessalonica, and now and we've been to Athens. And I've spoken in the Areopagus. I mean, you know, he had all these achievements he could have listed to say compare that to the super apostles. Oh, you know, there you go, mate. Try try competing with that resume. But what does he do? He realizes actually my resume is not that. My resume is. Uh, is actually about hardships and sufferings. All the things that I've done, uh, where I've been rejected by the Jewish leaders. You know, I've been flogged. I've been stoned. Uh, I've travelled and I couldn't even get from this destination to that destination without the shipwreck, you know? It's like all these weaknesses are the things that he boasts about. And you sit there and go, why is that? He's challenging his culture, uh, his culture of success. And I think when we think about... Um, 
uh, yeah, well, for Liz and I, you know, we send out regular prayer updates. And I, I can tell you that as missionaries who rely on people supporting us, it's very tempting to kind of present all the good things that God is doing. You know, and we want prayer for it. You know, I asked people on Friday um, in our email that went out on Friday to pray for me as I'm speaking this morning. You know, it's a great opportunity to be able to speak. And it's an honour to be invited to come and share um, with you from God's word this morning. And so it's part accountability and part encouragement to share what we're up to. And we definitely need the prayer, but it's also very easy to skip over the failures, you know, to present yourself in the best light. Isn't that what social media is all about? You know, people say uh, our Instagram holidays are all the best and most exciting things. And nobody ever shares on Instagram the, the hard stuff, on Facebook, the hard stuff. Um, but the reality is that the gospel isn't advanced by powerful people overwhelming others with their intellectual arguments or with their political nous or with their financial capacity. The gospel is not advanced by powerful people overwhelming others with their intellectual arguments, their political nous or their financial capacity. If the gospel was to be advanced that way, then when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he would have called down the 12 legions of angels and sorted it out. But rather, the gospel is advanced in humility and in the power of the Spirit. As Paul wrote in the opening to 2 Corinthians, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life itself. But this happened that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's his power that advances the gospel, working through us, Next week, you'll hit the bit of where it's like, uh, you know, his power, uh, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so I think that explains why Paul then goes on in the, in the last part to, um, to tell this weird little story about being let down in the basket out of the wall of Damascus. Uh, to reveal our weakness requires humility. And, uh, and in this story, so let me just read it again. So it's, um, uh, I'll pick up in verse 32. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus, and that is a hard word to pronounce, whoever was doing the reading before, um, had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. This is not boasting about his popularity and about his success. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, but there are some preachers who turn up in private jets. There's, there's a... Uh, I won't tell you about there's a social media account called Preacher's Sneakers that takes photos of all the uh, you know celebrity preachers and about the the expensive clothes that they wear. Um, but uh, but yeah, so he says uh, he's not that ex- not that excited or not that popular. But he says I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. It wasn't even his own strength or cleverness that got him out of trouble. It was somebody else doing the hard work of lowering while he was sitting helpless in a basket. Professor Judge is, uh, Edwin Judge was a famous professor at uh, the University of Macquarie where I served for 13 years and he wrote that this uh, episode was actually the contrast with the well-known Roman award for being the first soldier to scale a wall in a, in a time of war. That's right. The first guy at the top of the wall is in real trouble, right? You want to make sure that uh, you've got your mates with you. But if you got to the wall, top of the wall first, you got this uh, this incredible award, and you were well recognised. But Paul says, "I'm not even at the top. The one going to the top of the wall. I'm getting let down the wall." You know, 
Um, the brave assault brings glory. The helpless escape brings humiliation. But it shouldn't surprise us that humility and suffering are the way of the gospel. Because Paul also wrote that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did, uh, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something, something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, a death where naked on a public road, mocked, the most humiliating death you can imagine. He took our humiliation, even death on a cross. And that's when God exalted him. That's when God's power was displayed. Because through that humiliation and that suffering and that sacrifice, the gospel message was free to go to bless the nations. How should we respond? I feel like we're, as I said, we're feeling off our feet, a bit, um, a bit off balance at the moment with our rapidly changing culture, uh, the demands for affirmation, you know, uh, the Essendon saga that happened a few weeks ago. It was, I think it caught a few of us off guard. Um, the Archbishop, the Anglican Archbishop here in Melbourne says, I'm afraid that we've, uh, that we're losing our society of tolerance. And I was like, well, yes, well, duh. I, I had my chart that said we're moving from tolerance, right? Um, there's, uh, Andy Stanley, who's the, um, pastor at, uh, North, um, North Point Church in Atlanta. He's, uh, he wrote a book because he was so distressed about the, uh, about the tribal culture wars and the church being caught up in the culture wars in, in the US. And he said, uh, and the title of the book is neither, uh, we're not in it to win it. He says, but if we, if we lose the ability to engage each other critically, then we'll lose the answers to all the problems. We'll, we won't solve the problems that we face. Uh, and I think that was a bit of a modernist mindset, right? Um, we, we are off balance because we haven't solved how do we ch- as a church thrive? How do we advance the gospel in this culture yet? But I'll tell you the one way that we need to watch out for is not being caught up in the power plays. The power plays will not advance the gospel. It's only through humility and weakness, through being humiliated, willing to stand with those who are being shamed. And I'm thankful that there were people who were standing with Andrew Thornburn who weren't trying to change things but were willing to identify as yeah I'm like him He's, he wasn't rude, he wasn't abrasive uh, and you know I know I heard just this week that he's uh, considering engaging lawyers um, but prior to this he was not he was willing to just take the loss for the sake of being known as a follower of Jesus let me pray Father, we live in a world at the moment that in our culture we just feel uh, we're torn between all sorts of competing demands and viewpoints and it's tempting uh, to, to try to exert power. Uh, it's to gather coalitions, uh, to, exert, to use powerful arguments, intellectual arguments. Uh, but Father, would you help us to rely on your power? Would you give us the humility to accept the losses that will come from identifying with you and to join with you in the suffering that you modeled for us as your way of saving the world? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.